Good morning, friends. Privilege for me to spend this day with you. I have just loved being welcomed into your church this morning. Uh, Being your guest here today, it's so clear how much you love the Lord and love each other. So thank you for inviting me. Again, my name is Rob Reno with Visionary Family Ministries from Wheaton, Illinois, just about four hours south of you. And let me go ahead and introduce my family to you here, at least with a picture. Right there in the middle is my wife, Amy. We just celebrated 29 years of marriage this summer. So I got 30 coming up. So those of you men that have been there, I got pressure, pressure. So I am open for ideas and donations for our 30th anniversary, whatever you all think. We've been blessed with seven children. We've got four boys and three girls. Our W, Lissy, JD, Laney, Millie, Ray, and Rush, 26 to 9 or 10. I really don't know. And we've got two that are married and off the payroll. And announcement, 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 grandbaby numero uno. This is A.V., and there she is again, A.V. I got lots of pictures after the service. If you want, I can show you a whole bunch. And our grandson is on the way in January, so we are very thankful uh, to the Lord for our expanding family. But we got a big family, lots of happiness, lots of joy, lots of problems. Daily, daily problems. You put this many messed up people together, you get a lot of mess. So we are in need of God's grace and mercy every day. Let me tell you a little bit about my testimony and spiritual background. I didn't come from a big Christian family or Christian legacy. My mother was my father's fourth wife. My father was my mother's second husband. My mother had an extra relationship in her first marriage outside her first marriage, which resulted in the birth of my brother who my father adopted when they got married. Did you track any of that? And so then I came along uh, in my parents' marriage. Uh, they, they had been married three years when I was born. And needless to say that with that background, as you can imagine, their marriage was falling apart. So when I was three months old, my mom did not want to go on living. She was thinking about putting me and my older brother in a car and driving the three of us off a cliff together. And you see this on the news sometimes when this happens, and and we were that close to being that family. And one of these dark days for my mom, she picked up the phone and called a friend. She told her friend these thoughts that were going through her head. And her friend said, Angie, don't you move a muscle. I'm coming over to the house. And her friend came over and shared some things with my mom she had never heard before, who God was, how much God loved her that God had proven his love for her by becoming a man in Jesus, taking her sin, died on the cross, didn't stay dead, but rose again. And that if she would repent of her sins and put her faith on Christ, then there'd be hope for her. There'd be new life for her in Christ. And that's exactly what the grace of God did in her life. She repented, she put her faith in Jesus. And the Bible says she was born again. So I was three months old and I got a brand new mom. And we started doing crazy religious stuff. Started praying before we eat meals. Started going to church. My mom got involved in women's ministry things. And, and, you know, I'm five or six years old. And she's taking me to, like, women's conferences and creepy stuff like that. And now my, my dad was an atheist. And he thought that my mom had become a crazy Jesus person. And so he doubled down on his secularism and on his atheism. 
And once I got into junior high and, and high school, it came to light that my dad had um, his own extra relationships outside the marriage. He traveled for business. Turns out he had mistresses in different cities where he was traveling. And so my parents got divorced when I was 15. And that was the big wound and trauma of, of my life. Um, fast forwarding my dad's part of the story, he passed away in 2008 at the age of 90. So that's about 15 years ago now. Three weeks before he died, God worked a miracle in his life, brought him to repentance of his sins and faith in Christ. How many of you have, how many of you have a family member you've been praying for forever for them to come to Christ? Okay, so you don't stop praying. And you don't stop sharing the gospel as God gives you opportunity because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. A big part of my story then in my marriage with Amy, 2004, we had been married for 10 years. And we had like about four children. I really don't know. And during those first 10 years, I was a youth pastor. And as a youth pastor, the number one mission of my life is passing my faith to other people's children. So let's say you're the parents and grandparents at Wheaton Bible Church where I was serving. I want to help your kids follow Jesus. So I'm going to pray with your kids. I'm going to read the Bible with your kids. I'm going to take your kids on retreats and mission trips. I'm going to do lock-ins with your junior hire. Where's your have ever been a part of a lock-in? A horrible idea. They, most states have banned them, actually, I think. The name itself should tell you it's a bad thing. It's an overnight at church, like a stay up all night with junior hires. Who came up with this? All right. But we're doing all that stuff because we, we love young people and we want to see them follow Jesus. And it was a wonderful season of ministry. The problem was I was praying with other people's kids and not praying with mine. I'm reading the Bible with other people's kids. I'm not reading the Bible with mine. I'm a spiritual leader at church, and I'm passive in my house. In that summer of 2004, God brings me to this place of repentance and and brokenness. And as it says in Malachi 4 and Luke 1, I'll show you that in a minute, turns my heart to the ministry of my family and and convicts me. See, Rob, what what you had been doing, Rob, was putting your spiritual opportunities in front of your spiritual responsibilities, the, the souls that were entrusted to your care. So what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to do a, a power walk through, uh, through the Bible. We're going to start in Genesis chapter 1. One of the beauties of being a guest preacher and the hospitality that you're afforded, you know, pastor says, you know, normally, Rob, sermons 30, 40 minutes or so, but you just go as long as you want, you know, and I say, I thank you so much. So we're prepared for a one-ish uh, dismissal because no, I'm going to stick generally with the time, but I am going to uh, do a power walk through the Bible because I want to show you how cover to cover in the Bible, God connects two things that I think we've largely separated. He connects your family with his plan for the world. Now, when I say your family, I mean your messed up family. I mean my messed up family. I mean your relationship with your parents if they're living, your relationship with your siblings if you've got them, spouse if you're married, children, grandchildren, nieces, nephews, all those family relationships I want to show you in the Bible are directly connected to God's plan for the world. 
So I think y'all even got outlines this morning, right? With the different stops that we're going to take along the way. So you can jot some notes down. Normally, when I preach, I've got one text and I sort of exposit my way through this. Uh, But today I'm going to go through a whole series of them because I want to show you this connection cover to cover in God's Word. Are we ready? Uh, Pastor Chad's asking if anybody needs a, a handout. Maybe put your hand up and a faithful young man will come around and deliver to you. Are we ready for this? Both of you. Thank you for the two of you that said yes. Warm. That hospitality continues. All right, here we go. Genesis chapter 1. God makes a man. God makes a woman. And then God speaks to the first couple. Can anybody tell me the first words of God to the first couple in Genesis chapter 1? I'm going to ask you lots of questions. You can shout out and answer. If If you're wrong, I'll tell you in front of everybody. It's okay. First... First words of God to the first couple. There it is. I heard it out there. Be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth, and subdue it. Sometimes when I work with pastors in our counseling or our consulting ministry, I'll ask them, when's the last time you preached on God's first words to the first couple? I've had some pastors say, I'm not sure I've ever preached on that. And you would think that first words would be pretty important, right? First words to the first couple. In fact, they're incredibly important. God tells Adam and Eve what he, God, is going to do for the rest of human history. Do you know what God is doing right now? He is filling this earth with his people, with his word, with his worship, with his glory. Well, how is the earth going to get filled with people? He only made two. Well, he made male. He made female. He made intimacy. He made marriage. He made babies. One generation is going to raise another generation. It's going to raise another generation. And we're going to spread out and fill the earth with the worship of God. But you fast forward into the Noah account and the earth is not filled with worship. It's filled with what? It's filled with sin. Genesis 6, 5. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The most wicked time of human history. Never to be repeated again. So wicked, in fact, that God and his sovereign plan begins again, not with a righteous man, Noah, but with a righteous family. Noah and his wife, three sons, three wives, a family of eight. How many of you have ever seen a Noah's Ark children's book before? A little cardboard Noah's Ark book. There is a page in many of those little Noah's Ark books that is biblically inaccurate. And it's the page with old man Noah out in the field building the ark. And he's got his white beard and his wooden hammer. Can you picture the, the thing? He's out there in the field building the ark. The problem with that picture is that he's all by himself. Did you know you can't build an ark by yourself? Not like it's really hard to build an ark by yourself. You can't build an ark by yourself. And he didn't. He had three strapping sons. And God gave uh, Noah and his sons a family chore to do for a little less than 100 years. You try a family chore for an afternoon. Let me know how it goes for you. (laughs) Now remember, these aren't Bible people. They're people people. It's a dad and three sons. They're just as normal as any other dad. And they're in the Bible but they're normal people. So he gave them a family mission. Then Genesis 9, 1, God blessed Noah and his son. They step off the ark. 
Then God blessed Noah and his son, saying to them, be fruitful, increase in number, and what? Fill the earth. Do you think God wants something? He wants the earth filled with his people. Now, when we had our first child, our W, we designed or decorated his nursery with a Noah's Ark theme. When we had our seventh child, we found a closet for him. <laughs> the first kid gets extra, you know, bonus stuff. So, you know, we did the, the, the rainbow up on the wall and with the, the ark and the animals and a little a stencil, you know, God remembered Noah and stuff. But we, we take the Bible very seriously in our family. So down at the bottom, we had like the land and the mountains and the deluge of water and floating bodies, just dead bodies painted all around the bottom of the room. And we just told our infant son, you know, we've designed your room about the wrath of God against sin where he wipes out the whole world and we want that to comfort you while you sleep at night. We actually didn't do the second part, but it's strange. A lot of church nurseries or Noah's Ark theme, not a happy story, friends, right? God wiping it. Oh, whatever. Sermon for another day. Okay. Let's talk about Abraham. 4,000 years ago, God comes to a man, Abram, Abraham, and does he give Abraham a local micro-mission or a global macro-mission? Global macro. He says to Abraham, I'm going to bless you so that you'll be a blessing to the nations. You're going to have a global ministry. Now today, that even like makes sense for us. You get on an airplane, fly around, share the gospel, put something on the internet, reach the world. 4,000 years ago, how could you even conceive of an international ministry? Here's how God explained it to Abraham in Genesis 18. Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation. All the nations on earth will be blessed through him. Well, how does that work? For I've chosen him so that he'll direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he's promised him. Abraham, I'm going to fill the earth with my people, fill the earth with my worship. I want to use you for an international global ministry. And if you want to be a part of it, lead your family. Because reaching the world for the kingdom of God is not just an individual mission. It's a multi-generational mission. It's passing the baton of faith to the next generation who will pass it to the next generation. Okay, we've got one book of the Bible down. How many to go, Bible scholars? 65, right on track for that one-ish dismissal. Let's talk about the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 20, 10 commandments. First four commandments are vertical in that they have to do with the proper worship of God. The last six commandments are horizontal in that they have to do with the proper relationships with people. That makes the fifth commandment the first commandment for human relationships. Anybody know the fifth commandment? Exodus twenty twelve. Yeah, honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Amazing the order that God put these in. God put this before do not murder. He put this before do not commit adultery. Now, why would he do that? Well, I think one of the reasons is this is the first moral decision a human being faces in their life. You have a little two-year-old. You say, don't commit adultery. I don't know if the little guy needs to be too worried about that right now. 
How about honor your mother? Honor your father, right? First moral decision a little child faces in their life. Now, I've got to confess that the second part for many years was a little confusing for me. The promise. Paul in Ephesians 6 says the first commandment with a promise that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. And on the surface, it sort of looks like if you honor your father and mother, God promises that you'll live a long time. You'll live 70, 80, 90 years. But nowhere in Christian history was that really taught, nor is it ever practiced. I don't mean to be gruesome, but if we have a a funeral for a teenager in the church, no one ever says, well, they must not have honored their parents then because they didn't live a long time, right? So it's not about individual long life. Well, what is it about? The, The key to unlocking the promise of the fifth commandment is to understand that the Ten Commandments are not just given to individual people. That some of the YOUs, the U's, in the preamble and postamble of the Ten Commandments are not singular YOUs, they're plural YOUs. And so the spirit and the promise of the fifth commandment, in light of all the scriptures I'm sharing with you today, I believe is this, that if moms and dads and grandmas and grandpas will follow God, and their children and their grandchildren will honor them in the most important way of all, which is by receiving the faith that's passed to them and following God in their generation, then the people of God, the faith community, or in New Testament terms, the church of Jesus Christ, will live long in the land. Guaranteed. Lock-tight promise from God. Even in a local church, what could stop your church if by the grace of God you win your children and grandchildren to Christ? Answer? What could stop your church? By the grace of God, you win your children and grandchildren to Christ. Nothing. Because of the power of the multi-generational gospel. And friends, Satan and the demons totally understand this gospel principle. Which is why they put so much of their firepower against the passing of the faith to the next generation. And to do that, they put their firepower against the family. The best way to get a kid to hate God is destroy their family. Destroy their home. I was preaching in Russia 10 years ago. One of the pastors there was explaining about the the communist takeover of Russia in the early 20th century. Just shared some fascinating things. You know, they said that when the communists took over, they did not make uh, Christianity illegal at first or blow up the church buildings at first. First thing they did is they made it illegal for children to go to church. So imagine, right, soldiers at the door of your church. You, you old people, you can come in, no problem, if you have these crazy superstitious religious things. Your kids can't come in because you'll be dead Soon, right? You die in 10, 20, 30 years. Your children will be communists. You see, they had a multi-generational vision. It was an evil one, but it was a multi-generational vision. And it was a multi-generational plan. And I'm convinced something that God is doing all over the world right now is restoring to his church a multi-generational vision for the gospel that begins in our homes and overflows into our church. Let's talk about Deuteronomy chapter 6. In the Sunday school hour, I spent a little time on this, but I want to come back and and do some more. Deuteronomy 6 is a big deal passage in the Bible uh, because Jesus says so. Matthew 22, he is asked, what is the first and the greatest commandment? 
And he cites Deuteronomy 6. Jesus says the first and the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. That these commandments that I give to you today are to be upon your hearts. And growing up in church with my mom, this was a familiar passage to me. In fact, it was kind of like a a life verse for me. But I never kept reading to see what God then says to his people about where to start when it comes to loving him. And now God turns our attention to the home and he actually speaks to parents and grandparents. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commandments that I give to you today are to be upon your hearts. Teach them diligently to your children. In other words, if you want to love me and you've got kids and grandkids, mission number one, help them love me too. If you want my word in your heart and you've got kids and grandkids, nieces, nephews, help the little ones have my word in their heart too. That that our, our gospel ministry begins in our house. And it begins, as we talked about in the Sunday school hour, with this very intentional plan to make faith training a priority in our home. I'll ask you, how many of you, it's the desire of your heart to love God? You fall short every day, but you really want to love him, all right? How many of you, it's the desire of your heart that the kids and grandkids would love God? All right, let's go. We're like, okay, God, I'm in. I want to love you. Thank you for mercy and grace from Jesus. I want my kids and grandkids to love you. In fact, I want them to love you more than I love you. I want there to be generational progress in our home. And... God, I'm really all in. I want to love you. I want them to love you. But a good question for God now would be what? What do I do? How do I do it? And we know there's no do one, two, three, and here's the recipe for a perfect family or all your kids following Jesus. But wouldn't it be great if God were to sometimes take it down, love the Lord your God with all your heart, and teach them diligently to your children. Like if he were to give us something concrete, practical, something we could do in our house, toward the mission? Raise your hand if you have. That'd be great. I'd really appreciate God giving me something concrete to do. Uh, well, if, you, if that's what you want, that's the next verse. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commands I give to you today are to be upon your hearts and uh, teach them diligently to your children. And where do we start? We start here. Talk about them. The word of God, the things of God. Where? When you sit at home. Love God with all your heart. Yes, God, I want to love you. Where do I start? Open my book at home with your family. Talk about me at home with your family. In the first hour this morning, we we talked about family worship and some practical ways to do that. And out at the resource table, we've got lots of things that can help you grow in that area. Okay, let's fast forward to the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, the Italian prophet. No, Malachi, I know. Very last words of the Old Testament. This is about 400 BC. And some of you may be looking on your outline and I may be skipping stuff. So I'm sorry. Okay. You can see there's a lot of stops along the way and I'm make some decisions on the fly of where I'm going. Let's talk about Malachi chapter four, verses four through six. These are the very last words of the Old Testament, 400 BC. You're not going to get any more Bible for 400 plus years, all right? So this is how God wraps it up. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. 
See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I'll come and strike the land with a curse. The end. My Jewish friends, their Bible ends there, and now they have maps. You get that? Maps? Look at the back. It's my best joke. You people. All right. Here's what I'm trying to say. Can we agree that's a terrible ending? Like if that's the last, like it's begging for something more. In fact, God says, I'm going to send you the prophet Elijah. But I want you to see here is that the turning of the father's heart and in principle, the parent to the child and the turning of the child's heart to the father or the parent is directly connected to God's blessing of his people. Now, here's something one of my mentors showed me that, that blew me away. He said, Rob, this is how Richard Ross, and he's been at your church before. He says, this is how the Old Testament ends, and it's exactly how the New Testament begins. The turning of the father's heart to the child is the link between the Testaments. Okay, I've been asking you a bunch of Bible questions. Here's my hardest one. What is the first event of the New Testament? In other words, God's promised Messiah, 100 years, 200 years, 300 years, 400 years. What is the first event recorded in the New Testament? The event that would say, ah, Messiah's almost here. John the Baptist. Okay, warmer, warmer, warmer. Good, keep going on that thread. Hmm? John the Baptist's father... Okay, Zechariah being in the temple, warmer, warmer, warmer. We got one more step. But you got Zechariah right. The angel Gabriel appears to this old man, Zechariah. So in other words, if you're watching history, when's Messiah coming? When's Messiah coming? When's Messiah coming? When Gabriel shows up to speak to Zechariah, to give him a prophecy about his soon-to-be baby boy growing in his wife Elizabeth's womb, who is John the Baptist... We know that Messiah is almost here. So this is what I want you to see. The words of the angel Gabriel to Zechariah are God's next words of revelation since Malachi 4. There's been no revealed scripture or direct revelation from God from this until the revelation from Gabriel to Zechariah. Got it? So I'm going to cut out the 400 years. See, I'm going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Now, Gabriel speaks to Zechariah and says this. Many of the people of Israel will he, John the Baptist, soon to be growing in your wife's womb, will he bring back to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Does that sound familiar? Because it should sound like the prophecy of Malachi 4. Now, what's John the Baptist going to do? He's going to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous in order to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. If you've been around church, you know that God sent John to get the hearts of the people ready for Jesus. He did it two ways, but we only talk about one. One thing he pleaded with people to do is turn from disobedience to righteousness. Repent of your sins. The other thing he did is he pleaded with fathers to turn their hearts to their children. 
Now, what does that have to do with getting people ready for Jesus? The first one sounds pretty good, but what about this one? Well, when the hearts of parents, when the hearts of fathers are turned to the kids and the hearts of kids are turned to the fathers and the parents, everybody's heart is also soft toward Father God seeking to express his love for us through his son, Jesus. But when the hearts of parents are hard to the kids, hearts of kids hard to the parents, everybody's heart's also hard toward whom? Father God, seeking to express his love for us through his son, Jesus. How many of you want the hearts of your children and grandchildren prepared for Messiah? Then you ask God to turn your heart to them. God, make it the number one mission of my life to help these little ones safely home to you. Let's talk about the ministry of Jesus. Have you ever seen a little watercolor picture of Jesus and the little children? Well, let me read you the real history of when they painted that thing. Mark chapter 10, people were bringing little children to Jesus to have him touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, put his hands on them, and blessed them. I want you to know Jesus' emotions here. Now, when he was posing for the watercolor guy, was he smiling? Yeah? Right? All those pictures I've seen, he's all very smiley with the children. But what are his emotions toward the disciples? Indignant. Because he understands his ministry begins with the souls of the little ones, and the disciples are getting in the way of him ministering to the little ones. I also want you to notice, Pastor Chad, I want you to make sure I don't go off course here. Jesus was not married, like humanly, correct? He was a single man. Yes? Nor is he a parent. He doesn't have biological children. So he's a single guy with no kids. Am I correct? Double-checking. And yet, where's his heart? With the kids. I've had some friends say to me over the years, you know, I don't like kids very much. To which I have said, repent. (laughs) Hear it respectfully but firmly. What an unchristlike heart. And part of the reason why I think this is so important is this message that I'm sharing with you today about the multi-generational gospel is not just parents and grandparents. This is all God's people, all God's family. Every single believer ought to have a Christ-like love for children. And that when we're in this room, especially like this, and you see a, a, a little child behaving well or behaving awful, your heart ought to be just, I'm so glad they're here. I'm so glad they're in this family, and I'm so glad that I get to be uh, a part of it. Let me, um, this is bonus. This is not on your outline, and I want to do this quickly because I think it's important. This word indignant is an unusual word in the New Testament. The next time we find it is the day after Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday, Jesus comes into Jerusalem riding on the donkey, Hosanna to the son of David. The next day, he goes back into Jerusalem to begin his How to Win Friends and Influence People tour. And his first stop is what? In the temple. What's he going to do? He's going to throw 
all the tables over, right? The, those that are being corrupt and taking advantage of all the people, making it a den of thieves rather than a house of prayer. And one would think that the Pharisees would be upset about that. And I'm sure they were, but they're just not mentioned at that point. The next thing that happens is the blind and the lame come into the temple courts and Jesus heals them all. This was a violation of Old Testament law. To come into this area of the temple court, you could not have any physical defect. You had to be physically perfect. You couldn't come in with a limp or or a sickness or anything like that. Now, in our 21st century mindset, we find that to be appalling. Imagine someone uh, uh, with, you know, they, they have crutches or something, and we say, no, you can't come to church today. We would say, what a horrible thing. But it was a gospel lesson. Who can ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who can go to heaven? Only he with clean hands and a pure heart. Only the perfect person can go to heaven. Where does that leave you? Out. We need a savior. We need someone to forgive us and rescue us. Oh, that's a sermon for another day. Blind and the lame come in. Pharisees, I'm sure, are not happy, but they're not mentioned. Then the kids come in, and they're not supposed to be there either. And they start singing, Hosanna to the son of David. And then the kids say to Jesus, the, 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 the Pharisees say to Jesus, it says, uh, first of all, it says, at this, the Pharisees were indignant. Jesus is indignant that the kids are kept away. The Pharisees are indignant that the kids are coming in. Pharisees say to Jesus, do you not hear what these little ones are saying? And Jesus says, yeah, I hear them. Have you not read that out of the mouths of infants and babes, God's called forth praise? I was preaching in Malaysia. One of my pastor friends there, he says, Rob, have you ever gone back to the Old Testament to find out why, to to look at the scripture Jesus is quoting, he's quoting himself, it's his word. Have you ever gone back to the Old Testament to see why God calls forth praise from children? I said, I have not done that. He said, you should. I said, I will. Let me ask you. Why do you think, what's your first instinct of why God calls forth praise from children and infants? Oh, I love that. What's your name? Brendan. Brendan. Great answer, Brendan. That's exactly what I would, would say too. Because we know that God loves a childlike faith, right? And so for a child to worship Jesus with that heart, we know that God would love that. And that's exactly what I thought. But that's not the answer. You go back to Psalm 8, And uh, I'm going to pull it up here real quick. Sorry, I don't have it on the screen. Again, this was a a, a free point that you didn't have to pay for. Um, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babes and infants, you've called forth praise to silence the enemy and the avenger. Did you catch that? O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you've called forth praise to silence the enemy and the avenger. I can't explain this to you, but I don't know any other way to interpret that passage, that something happens in the spiritual realm when children sing and worship Jesus, it shuts the mouth of the devil and the demons. How many of you would like to shut the mouth of the devil and the demons in your church and in your home? I would. So what could we do more of? Get the kids singing because God's called forth praise from them to enter the realm of spiritual battle. Okay, let's get back to uh, uh, what we were talking about. The early church, the early church launched with this multi-generational vision. 
Day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. The followers of Jesus uh, are in the upper room and the, the Holy Spirit falls on them. And it's not just the disciples. Mary's there. And it says that Jesus' brothers were there. Mark 4 tells us Jesus had four little brothers and at least two little sisters. One of Jesus' little brothers was named James. James became a pastor in Jerusalem. He wrote the book of James. That's Jesus' little brother. I, I love thinking about James. James came to the point in his life where he became completely convinced that his big brother was God. Try that on for size. <laughs> Remember, they're not Bible people. These are real people. And even Jesus' family, they struggled a little bit, right? Understanding exactly who he was. So yeah, James was like, yeah, my brother's God, creator of the world. Yes. Okay. So Holy Spirit falls on them. They go out, they start preaching the gospel in all these other languages. Peter wraps it up with the church's first evangelistic sermon. His opening point is God sent Messiah and you killed him. That was his warm up the crowd opener. Holy Spirit cuts them to the heart and they say, then what must we do to be saved? Peter replies, repent, be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Folks, there it is. This is the launch of the early church. And you see the threefold move of the gospel that I want you to see today is cover to cover in the Bible. You, your kids in the world. You, your kids in the world. You, your kids in the world. 20th century Christianity in the West, we, we cut the middle piece out. So, so church is about having a relationship with God and going out there and doing something good. Having a relationship with God, volunteering at church, having a relationship with God, sharing your faith. Look, I, I love all of that. But you cut the middle piece out. Repent. Trust Christ. Now, honor your parents. Are you married? Your first ministry for Christ is the soul of your spouse. Have you been entrusted with children or grandchildren or nieces, nephews? Go make disciples of these little ones. And then as a family, please go Make a difference and reach your neighbors and go on mission trips and give. I, I love all of that. But you see, God created the church and the family to work together like two pedals on a bike. And in 20th century in the West, we took our foot off the family pedals. We're pedaling the church pedal harder and faster, but we're losing ground in the culture because we've left behind the biblical model of gospel advance, which is a partnership between the church and the home. One more scripture before we go into a time of prayer. Third John verse four, it says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. John was one of the disciples who, based on the histories we have, was not married, didn't have his own children. The others were, were married with kids. So John's a single guy. So when he is writing about his children, he's talking about his spiritual children. And he says, I've got no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. And what a principle for parents and grandparents. No greater happiness, no greater joy than when we, are, when we see our kids following Christ. But the opposite's also true. No greater sorrow when our kids and grandkids are not. We've done this survey in churches all over the country Two-thirds of empty nest parents in the church, two-thirds of parents of adult kids, 
have at least one of their adult children far from God. And it's the most painful part of their life. It's so painful, in fact, they don't talk about it very much. Because they come to church and they see all the perfect happy people. In fact, let's, let's do that. Would you just ter- look that way? Look at, pick someone out there and look, look at that table. Look how beautiful and happy they are. Okay, now I want you to look over here. Just shift around. Pick somebody over here. Look at a table. Look at them. Seven generations of missionaries all together. Now everybody look back at me, please. Right here. I want you to know your family is the only messed up family here. And I'm sorry about that. I really am. I know you're surrounded by perfect people and, I, and you're a mess. I apologize, but obviously it's not true. But see, the enemy gets in and, and, and gets us thinking, uh, thinking like that. So I just want to encourage you, if you're in that situation and you've got an older child, an older teenager, an adult child who's in a broken relationship with you or broken relationship with the Lord, it's not too late. All right? It's not too late. When I say it's not too late, I mean it's not too late for God to use you as mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, I don't care how far away they live. I don't care what's happened in the relationship. It's not too late for God to use you to encourage faith uh, in, their, in their life. Doing this power walk through the Bible this morning, does it make more sense to you why Satan and the demons attack your family so intensely? Because what happens in your little home, what happens in my little home, is directly connected to the advance of the gospel. It's directly connected to God's plan of multi-generational advance. And he always strikes the base. He always, like, like Jenga. So what happens is you got a little Jenga tower. And imagine, you know, I want to hold this and I want to hold this. Oh, good for you. And the enemy is like slapping the base out of the whole thing. While you're trying to hold on to little things up top. God wants us to strengthen the base. And that begins in the home. And I think the best way for us to respond this morning is just to go into a a time of prayer together. And for some of us, it may be an an urgent uh, time of prayer. Uh, I'm going to lead us in praying through a couple areas of our families. You can pray right where you are, um, but but there'll be also some, you may want to come up front and pray. You could come up front alone. You could bring your family up front. There'll be people up here to pray with you also. So you're going to pray at your table. You're going to pray up front. You're going to pray. Most important thing is that we engage in this time right now. So would you bow your heads? Uh, close your eyes with me. In this first area of prayer, and again, do not hesitate to come up front if you would like prayer uh, with someone here. But this first area of prayer, is there a marriage in your family that needs a miracle? It could be your parents' marriage. It could be your marriage could be a sibling's marriage or a child's marriage, but that marriage needs a miracle. Would you please ask God to do that miracle right now? Let's now lift up any prodigal in your family, particularly a young person or a young adult who is struggling in their faith and far from God. Would you ask for the Holy Spirit to do a work in their heart, even today, to turn their heart to Christ? For some of us, our prayer response today may need to be one of confession. We've not been leading our family spiritually. There has not been prayer and open Bible in our home. And God has called you today to step into that role of of spiritual leadership in your family. Would you confess that to him and ask for 
fresh strength from the Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, every one of our families is struggling and falling short. We, we, um, we sin at home a lot. And we're desperate for your Holy Spirit to work a transformation of our families. And would you please turn our hearts to the next generation in our homes and here in our church? Because we want to see the gospel advance. We want to see the next generation love you more than we ever have. To trust your word more than we ever have. To shine brighter for Christ more than we ever could. Um, but Lord, that's not going to happen without your Holy Spirit turning our hearts to our families in your Holy Spirit strengthening us every day to live for Christ in our homes. So we humbly ask for your help that you'd fill us with this biblical vision. And I pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.